This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to Job chapter 34. And as you make your way to the 34th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. And so it'll first help us to remember that it was just two weeks ago when we were first introduced to a young man named Elihu. And now we really don't know what his connection was to Job or Eliphaz, Bildad or Zophar. He could have been a neighbor that lived nearby who just came across the conversation and stopped in for, you know, for a listen. Or, or, or maybe he was a servant you know, of one of these men and he was just there to support his boss. But regardless of his position, Elihu sat there in silence as he patiently listened to all of the allegations being made against Job. Not only that, but he also held his tongue as he listened to the way that Job defended his innocence. And then when Job wrapped up his final defense, that's when Elihu felt the need to speak up. And for the past two weeks, we've considered the content of his first speech, which included corrections directed at all four men. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Elihu, he's launching into this second speech, and it's here in this chapter of Job, we find Elihu addressing the issues of justice and equity, and with this as our focus, uh, we're going to consider the spiritual standard of true justice. Not only that, but we're also going to consider the difference between justice and social justice, and especially as it pertains to the topics of equality and equity and these sorts of things. So with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to the content of Elihu's second speech, which is found here in Job chapter 34. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we learn that Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry now. But seriously, you know, here we find Elihu encouraging Job and his counselors to carefully consider his words. He's saying, hey, hear me out. And, he, and he's saying, hey, listen to me with critical ears that are also ears that are open to correction. In other words, Elihu was encouraging them to be critical thinkers, which is a good thing, but while simultaneously challenging them to be correctable thinkers. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 12. It's verse 15 there where he declares, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. In other words, foolish people are quick to reject the wise counsel of those who challenge their point of view, and it's for this reason that we ought to humble ourselves and we ought to humble ourselves enough to consider the counsel of Christians who want to provide us with biblically-based correction. It doesn't mean that they're automatically correct, but we, we at least should consider the correction. Please trust me when I tell you that the Christian who is unable to receive correction will become a foolish believer who is unable to see where they're wrong. And it's for this reason that we should not only be critical thinkers, but we should also be critical of our own point of view. You know, it's, it's easy for us to be critical thinkers when it comes to everyone else's point of view, but can we be critical of our own point of view? Can we be critical of our own thoughts? 
We ought to be. We ought to be critical thinkers, regardless of whether it's our point of view or somebody else's. And in this way, we can actually become correctable Christians who are kept on course uh, by others who want to help us. And with this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the way that Elihu corrected the perspectives of Job and his three friends. And so if you would look with me here at Job chapter 34, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 4. Here, uh, Elihu goes on to declare, let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice now here in these verses we find elihu he's addressing job's questions about the justice of god and just to be clear you know the word justice which is found there in verses four five six and twelve that that word justice is translated from a hebrew word which was used of any judicial decision which results in a righteous ruling this includes the fair punishment of those who break the law and also the justification of those who were falsely accused. And as we consider the way that Elihu was addressing this topic of justice, you might be interested to know that the same subject has also been raised 12 times throughout this book. For example, it's in Job chapter 8. That's where Bildad asked, Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? So it was raised by Bildad back in chapter 8. In, in chapter 19, we also find Job declaring, If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. In Job chapter 27, Job also declares, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty has made my soul bitter. And then in Job chapter 32, we find Elihu declaring, Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Now now again, this is just four examples uh, of the 12 uh, points in this book that the issue of justice has been raised. And so there should be no doubt that this book is heavily focused on the questions surrounding the subject of justice, which not only impacts our lives collectively, but also politically and economically. It's for this reason that there are many different theories about justice. There are many theories about justice which each seek to strike a balance between our individual liberties and societal equity. How do we strike this balance about, you know, what is just for me to do by myself and what is just for me to do within all of society? One philosopher named James Bruce presents four different theories of justice, which includes progressive justice, libertarian justice, socialist justice, and conservative justice. And while we could spend the rest of our night here considering the pros and the cons of each of these theories, the real question that we ought to be asking is this. 
Is justice just a social construct which is created by men or are the foundations of justice based on the just character of our creator? What is the basis or the foundation for establishing true justice? Christian, listen, if our system of justice is made up just by the thoughts of mortal men, then the foundations of our judicial system are completely unstable because people have different thoughts from generation to generation, and in this generation, that's okay, but then you get two generations down the road, and what we thought was just is no longer just, and it's just unstable foundation. And listen, this is true regardless of the underlying philosophy. Think about it. If justice is based on the utilitarian approach of just seeking the greater good, well, then justice is effectively established by the mentality of the mob. If it's just about the greater good, well, then the greatest number of people get to determine what is just. And just because you have a bunch of people saying that something is just, does that automatically make it just? What if the mob is actually calling for injustice, but calling it just? Does that make it okay? And listen, if justice is based upon the social contract of the common good, not, not necessarily the, the greater good, but the, but, but, but the common good, what's most commonly good, well, then true justice can never be achieved by the judges who adjust their judgments in order to fight against discrimination with discrimination. Uh, that's what's happening within social justice. It's fighting against discrimination by using discrimination. It's like you're just switching who's being discriminated against. Is that just? Absolutely not. Now, with all this in mind, I want to take a closer look at the statement that Elihu makes here in Job chapter 34. Let's back up and take a look at verse 4. There he declares, Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Now, from this, we can see that those who want to establish justice here in this world, we must choose what is right. And we must choose what is right according to what is good. And so the theory of determinism, determining our outcome in life, and so we have to adjust you know, justice according to this sort of deterministic uh, concept. Uh, well, not according to Elihu here. According to Elihu, we must choose justice. It's not predetermined. It's a choice that we must make. We must choose justice for ourselves according to what is good. That word good, uh, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which speaks of that which is ethically correct. What this means is that true justice must be based on righteous judgments that correspond to the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to consider how Elihu puts it as he addresses Job's complaint about the way in which the Lord robbed him of justice. And, you know, after spending a few verses talking about Job's complaints, uh, then he begins to launch into uh, a little bit more information on correct justice. Notice with me again there in verse 10. Here Elihu declares, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. In other words, it's impossible for our Creator to do anything which is in conflict with his character. Our creator is unable to do anything that's in conflict with his character. And, and, and this might be shocking for some to hear. You know, it's not uncommon for Christians to think that God can do anything. Can he? No, he can't. He can't do everything. In other words, he can't do something that's in conflict with his character. 
God can't lie. God can't do something that's unjust. And, and while you might be shocked to learn that there's something that God can't do, we can at least rejoice in knowing that the Lord cannot commit any act of iniquity. And in this we can rest. Not only that, but it's there in verse 12 where Elihu doubled down on this by declaring, surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. It's impossible for our Almighty God to pervert justice. And the reason why is because God is, an, is, is a God who is infinite in all of his attributes. God is infinite in all of, all of his attributes. And since one of his attributes is being divinely just, well, then it only stands to reason that God himself is the perfect standard of true justice. I like the way that the prophet Isaiah explains it in Isaiah chapter 30. It's in the second half of verse 18 where he declares, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Our almighty God is the perfect standard by which justice is defined because he is a God of justice. It's for this reason that Elihu was compelled to challenge Job concerning his irrational argument about the injustice of God. You know, Job, in, in several points during his arguments, really called God's character into question by suggesting that God had robbed him of justice, and Elihu's saying, nope, you're wrong. God can't do something that's unjust. He cannot pervert justice. And after challenging Job's perspective concerning the justice of God, Elihu then presents them with a question regarding judicial authority. I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 34. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 13, here Elihu asks, Who gave him charge over the earth? Or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Elihu was effectively asking these guys, is there anyone greater than our creator? In other words, is there a God who is the God of our God? Is there a judge who sits in a higher court? A judge who has greater authority than the righteous judge of heaven and earth? These are rhetorical questions and the answer of course is no. There's no one greater than our God. If there was a God above our God, then that would be God and, and not the one we call God, right? That being the case, we can rest assured that the creator who created the world and everything in it, this is the same sovereign judge who has established justice according to his infinite and immutable character, and he's the one who gives us every breath. Elihu says, hey, if, if God removed his spirit and his breath from the earth, then then." We would, all, we would all perish. It, it's, it's crazy to imagine that God gives us every single breath and then consider how many people use that breath to take his name in vain. To, to say things that are blasphemous. God gave them the breath and they used it to blaspheme the one who gave them the breath. With all this in mind, it's important to understand that God is the Almighty One who gives us every single breath. And I like the way that Paul describes God 
uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's there where he assures us that our Creator is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. To sum it up with simplicity, there's no one greater than our Creator. And seeing how He is the one who has the greatest level of authority over His creation, well then it only stands to reason that He is the one who's able to define justice. Now to further grasp this fact, let's continue to consider the argument that Elihu is presenting here in his second speech. I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 34. Look with me there, beginning at verse 16. Here Elihu asks, If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and the nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Now here in these verses we find Elihu, he's asking his audience to explain how God could rightly rule if he was also a God who hated justice. How could he be a righteous ruler while also hating justice. And on what basis does an imperfect human turn around and condemn the righteous judge of heaven and earth? What standard would a human use to turn around and say, God, you know, why are you being unjust? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, does it? How can we question the God by whose character establishes what justice even is? And he reminds them here about the way that you know, the, the God who created justice is able to also condemn earthly rulers who make their judgments according to the imperfect standards of human partiality. Now, now with this in mind, Elihu here, he's, he's reminding these men that the judgments of God aren't based on a person's position or power. When it comes to human judges, that's very typical. Human judges, you know, oftentimes use human partiality to to pass their judgments but not God notice again there in verse 19 here again he declares he is not partial to princes nor does he regard the rich more than the poor for they are all the work of his hands regardless of whether we're talking about a rich person or a poor person that you know, God treats them all the same. God sees them all the same. The, the, and, and therefore, the just judgments of the Lord aren't based on the partial opinions of human preferences. No, instead, true justice must be based on impartial decisions which are free from prejudice. And, and listen, the sword of justice must corre- uh, cut correctly regardless of a, a person's position or power. Case in point, listen, just because somebody is a prince, you know, with with, with position or or with power, it doesn't mean that they're above the law. Like, even if your name is Andy Prince, like, you're not above the law. (laughs) 
But just because you're the son of a king, even, you know, just because you're the son of a tyrant, even, listen, even if you're like the president's son and you're guilty of possession and prostitution and illegal custody of a firearm and these sorts of things, like, well, it shouldn't really matter who your dad is, right? This individual should be judged with righteous judgment. Their position should not matter. At the same time, the person who has no position, the person who has no power, and then turns around and decides to go steal something like, you know, a bunch of iPhones from the Apple store. Well, should they be excused because maybe they grew up in poverty? Does their poverty excuse them from the crimes they commit? Well, not if you want to establish true justice. True justice is based on the impartial judgments that can only be carried out by judges who are ready to punish both the rich and the poor with the same biblical standard. Sadly, we live in a day and an age when our judicial system is failing our nation as judges on both sides of of the political aisle remove the blindfold from Lady Justice, so to speak, because they think justice should be partial according to their own politics. And listen, judges on both sides of the aisle are, are, are doing this. They're, they're both guilty. Whether we're talking about social justice or Supreme Court cronyism, our, our nation is plagued by corrupt judges who fail to recognize that they themselves will eventually answer to a higher court, and I praise the Lord for that. Let's consider how Elihu explains it here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there again, Job chapter 34. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 20. Here Elihu goes on to declare, In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away, the mighty are taken away without a hand, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in peace his mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted when he gives quietness Who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Whether it is against a nation or a man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared. Now here in these verses we find Elihu, he's assuring his audience about the just judgment of the Lord. And while it's true that there are unjust judges who are ready to receive a bribe behind closed doors, it's also true that there's coming a day when they're going to give an account for the ways that they use their position and power to pervert justice. And listen, the unjust judges of this world won't be able to hide behind their ungodly philosophies on the day of judgment. They're not going to be able to show up and say, yeah, but I had a theory of of justice that didn't line up with the Bible. That's That's not going to excuse them. That's not going to pardon them. This was precisely the point that Asaph was making in the 82nd Psalm. It's there where he declares God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the judges. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. 
Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are God's. And all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now here in this psalm, we find the seer named Asaph. He's sharing his frustration you know, with all of those unjust judges who were perverting justice here on the earth. It's here in this psalm, it's in the very end of the psalm where Asaph cries out for the righteous judge of heaven and earth to come and judge the wicked. And and he's calling for for the Lord to come and judge the wicked judges of the earth so that righteousness can finally reign supreme. This is the same day of judgment that Paul was referring to in Acts chapter 17 It's there where he declares, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. As we consider what Paul is saying here, it's nice to know that the Lord has appointed a day when he will finally judge the world in righteousness. He's appointed a day when he will finally deal with the problem of evil. And isn't it wonderful to consider the second coming of Christ when the Lord will finish the transgression? He's going to make an end of sins. He's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. And it's at that point in time when he will bring in everlasting righteousness. And to that, to that I say, let's, let's go. I can't wait for this day. Now, if the thought of Christ's second coming fills your heart with fear, well, then it's possible that you're still concerned about his judgment. If the thought of Christ's second coming fills your heart with fear, then you might be thinking, I don't know if I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if that's the situation in your heart, then I want to consider the point that Elihu goes on to raise here in Job chapter 34. If you would look with me there, picking up our study at verse 31, Elihu declares, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms, just because you disavow it? You must choose, and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Now listen, as much as I love the New King James Version of the Bible, uh, I find uh, the, the, the translation of these verses just a little, little clunky here. Uh, and I actually like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verses 31 through 33. They put it like this. Why don't people say to God, I have sinned, but I will sin no more? Or I don't know what evil I have done. Tell me, if I have done wrong, I will stop at once. Must God tailor his justice to your demands? But you have rejected him. The choice is yours, not mine. Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. Here we find Elihu, he's hitting the nail straight on the head as he asks, must God tailor his justice to your demands? In other words, Elihu's asking here, should we expect God to change his perfect standard of justice so that you can escape the punishment that you deserve? Should, God, should we expect God to change his perfect standard of justice so that it can fit with the ways of this world? 
Shall we expect God to change his perfect standard of justice because fallen philosophers have created competing theories of, you know, what are the foundations of justice? And the answer to all of this is, of course not. Just because fallen philosophers come along and introduce godless theories of of how we establish justice, whether it's the social contract, utilitarianism, or whatever the case might be, it doesn't change the true foundations of justice. Our Creator is the King Eternal. He's infinitely immortal and gloriously invisible And with that, God alone is wise enough to establish true justice. Bring me the smartest people in the world and and let them work for a hundred years on on a new theory for justice and, and it will be silly in the eyes of God. God alone is wise enough to establish true justice for us and therefore we would do well to honor Him by submitting to His sovereign will. And how do we submit to his sovereign will? Well, I think that Paul puts it best in Romans chapter 12. It's verse 2 where he declares, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Rather than being conformed to the unbiblical theories of justice created by fallen philosophers, we ought to instead allow the Lord to transform our lives through the renewing of our minds. In other words, we ought to be you know, investing time into understanding justice from a biblical perspective so that the worldly thinking can be flushed out and so that we can embrace what the Bible says about justice. And in this way, we begin to discover God's good, and acceptable and perfect will pertaining to all subjects, including justice. With this as the goal, we must not forget that it's God's desire to provide mercy to those who deserve judgment. And this is so important for us to remember. And with this in mind, I want to consider the final section of this chapter. If you would look with me there at Job 34, we'll pick up our study at verse 34. Here, Elihu goes hard by saying, Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sins. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, you know, Elihu's he's going hard here. He clearly didn't feel the need to pull any punches here. And, and he's been, you know, he's pr- been pretty straightforward throughout the entire chapter here. But, but here in these final verses, I mean, he just comes swinging. And, and, and while he's made some excellent points throughout this chapter concerning the infinite foundation of true justice, his accusations against Job actually take on a harsh tone here in the end of his second speech. And, and listen, you know, I, I know that Job has said some things that, uh, that are very questionable, some things that are even wrong, but, but it was more inquisitive. It was more of a struggle to understand why God was allowing all these things to happen to him. He wasn't just outright rebelling against God. And yet Elihu kind of takes this harsh tone with Job without much compassion or understanding. 
And, and it's in similar fashion that, 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 that there are many in the church today who are quick to accuse those who fall short of God's perfect standard. And, and while the accusations might be on point, they fail to communicate the beautiful truth that the Lord actually desires mercy and not sacrifice. Because remember, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. No, instead he came to call sinners to repentance. Now, I truly believe that we ought to be warning sinners about the just judgment of Jesus Christ. It's important for people to understand what they need to be saved from before they'll even want to be saved. So we need to warn sinners about the just judgment of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, we should also help them to understand what Paul meant when he informed us that sinners can be freely justified through the redemption that is received by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this way, Jesus is not only just, but then he becomes the justifier of those who trust in him. In light of these things, we do well to remember that the judge of heaven and earth is also a merciful Messiah who's ready to pardon the sins of those who will simply receive his grace by faith. And this is great news for all of us because I'm sure we recognize we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. What we all deserve is a just punishment from the judge of heaven and earth. It's for this reason that we have to approach the Lord Jesus Christ not on the basis of law and good works, but rather throwing ourselves at the mercy of this judge who's ready to pardon us. I like the way that James explains it in James chapter 2. It's there where he declares, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Christian, listen, before we judge others without any compassion, before we judge others without any mercy, we should take a moment to remember the manifold amount of mercy that we've received from our Messiah. We should take some time to just consider how much mercy we've received by faith in Jesus Christ. And then once we've considered the way that Christ has freed us from the condemnation that we deserve, well then we can begin to approach others in a way that allows the mercy of our Messiah to triumph over judgment in the way that we help them to see how we can receive the mercy of God by faith. And listen, this is not to say that God isn't just. God is perfectly just. And listen, he's infinitely just. And seeing how God is infinitely just, then he must also punish every single sin with an infinitely just punishment. You can't get around that. At the same time, God the Father sent his only begotten son to receive the punishment that we deserve so that justice could be served. Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place so that justice could be served 
and so that we could receive the judicial pardon that we don't deserve. In this way, Jesus remains just while becoming the justifier of those who trust in him. With that being the case, I encourage you, let's go out and share this good news that our Messiah has made it possible for mercy to triumph over judgment.